Okay, so let's get started. Let me just give a general um, appreciation one more time to the Mass Youth Group family for permitting me to do this. Um, and to every single one of us that actually participated in the research that we are talking about. If you, if you did, you can type in the comment section that you participated and all that. And perhaps you will probably even see one of your responses uh, as part of the things that will be shared in the course of this conversation. Um, for those that are new on the, on the Immersed Youth Group platform, and particularly for what we are doing today, like I said, this particular topic that we're talking about, African Millennial Christians, is based off of my uh, master's dissertation in African Christianity, which I just concluded um, a couple of months ago. Um, and the findings from the research I did for my dissertation, I thought it's something that somehow pertains to the membership of the Massachusetts group, and by extension, the different um, spheres of influence in which each of us is functioning. Um, and are some, some few things that are instructive for us in that regard. So I don't take for granted the privilege that I have to share this with us and for everyone that has joined in for the purpose of this conversation. So African Millennial Christians research-based conversation on the questions of identity among young Nigerian Christians in the 21st century. That's what we're talking about. Let me give a bit of an outline. And of course, I've got lots of slides here, which I will skip over some part, some parts of it to focus on some other parts that would also lead on to some conversation. At different points in the presentation, I would ask for our thoughts, our opinions about some of the things we're talking about. Um, but generally, the outline of the, of the presentation goes background to the research, the research questions, the limitations of the study, the definition of key terms, literature review, methodology, all of those first parts is just to give us a kind of a backdrop and I would probably speed through some of that. But the main thing I want to share with us are the research findings and the implications of that research. And then of course, um, to conclude all of that together. Um, I wrote on my title slide that all these pictures that I used are from a particular young man that uh, has some interesting pictures on Unsplash. He's a Nigerian by the name of Adidotson So all the credits for the pictures go to him. Pictures on Unsplash can be used um, royalty-free just for the reference. Okay, so background to the research. Um, the fact is that I personally, of course, I'm an African, I'm a Nigerian, and uh, I'm a millennial by some definitions, uh, and I'm a Christian. And for me, of course, again, then there comes the added layer of the fact that I'm into pastoral ministry, and I'm privileged with my wife to run and lead an online mentorship group for young adults. So there are so very many strands of my life that culminates in why this is personal for me um, and why I chose this line of research to begin with, or why I even chose to do the course in African Christianity to start with as well. So what led me into taking the program was because um, I was invited by the, by the school Liverpool University in the UK to be a part of a curriculum design um, program for a master's that they were just going to start. They've not named it and they were just bringing the module together. And I've done a master's there before and my research then made them invite me to be a part of that. And when I was part of that conversation for the first time in my life, 
I was faced with how ignorant I was about African Christianity. I've always thought, what is it about Christianity in Africa that we don't know? Um, to grow up in Nigeria within proper Christian circles, proper inputs, um, and to have been exposed to different you know, ministries and things like that. I thought I knew well enough, but at that moment in time, I was really, really dazed at how ignorant I was sitting with all those professors and, 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 and the rest of them. And that triggered my desire to want to not just sit down at the curriculum design event, but actually enroll on the program myself and learn. And that's what led to this journey. Now, the history of Christianity in Africa is, when we say Christianity in Africa, most of us just think, oh, it's just some 200, 300 years ago when these missionaries brought Christianity to Africa. But in actual fact, by the time we started tracing it, we saw that Christianity has been in Africa for as long as Christianity has been. Um, I mean, there are different fragments in the New Testament that you could trace that to. Some people believe that the person that wrote the Gospel of Mark went on to preach in Egypt, um, in Africa, and went on to start a ministry that was prosperous and flourished there. You know, in the book of Acts about the Ethiopian eunuch that came from Ethiopia, met with Philip, received the gospel and went back his way. And, and that's led on to a story of very many um, centuries of Christianity, especially in Northern Africa. Um, Egypt became the, the Alexandria in Egypt specifically became the place where many of the things that became um, theology in the West started from. So the Augustines and the Tertullian and all of that Many of them were wrestling with many of these theological issues way back in the second, third, fourth century in Africa. And that's what battered many of these things. Some will even argue that university education system started in Africa and many other developments like that. And Christianity has survived on the continent for as long as that time till now, especially um, in Ethiopia, in Northern Africa, and some other parts like that. So all of that to just give us a, a bit of a backdrop. However, it was not until the 19th century, really, that when slave trade was abolished, when missionaries began to go around the world from Europe and America to take the gospel out more intentionally, that we began to have what we can then call modern or more recent form of Christian expression um, in Africa. Uh, and that has grown so mightily and so so quickly beyond all projections such that today Africa has become the continent that has the highest number of Christians in the world. Um, to put that in perspective, uh, in, in the beginning of the 20th century, nobody ever thought that that would be the case. Um, but yeah, that's where we are. I won't, I won't divert too much from my slides so that I don't just start lecturing us on, um, on what I've not come to present anyways. Um, so the reintroduction of Christianity to Africa in the 19th century gave rise to an identity crisis. In what sense? When the Western missionaries began to come and they began to preach the gospel, trying to get to know the people, the culture and all of that, for the most part, what they did was they, they were not intentional about bringing the gospel to us in a way that we can understand it. I'm saying we, even though I wasn't yet born, but in the way that the Africans could contextualize it. To be a, to be a Christian to them then, and this wasn't because of any ill intention, but to be a Christian then for the most part, for most of those missionaries was more or less to become 
like a Westerner, like an Oyimbo man or woman, as the case may be. So you have to change your name in many cases. You have to start dressing like them. You have to start trying to, you know, learn the scriptures and, and, and do Christianity in their way. Many mainline churches, the Anglicans, the Methodists, and all of that, um, with the quiet mode of worship that would be the ideal in a Western setting, that was what many of them were trying to replicate. Um, in fact, many of our cities, because of colonialism as well, you know, this was happening around the same time that colonialism was going on as well. So that also contributed um, to that. And so we have these superior colonial masters and people like them that were supposed to also be our priests and our pastors, bringing us civilization, bringing us Christianity and bringing us commerce in a sense. And so when all of those things are coming together, what was happening for the most part was an issue of identity. To be a Christian is to stop being whatever you were before so that you can become a Christian. And now we are born into a generation where the world has become a global village. When I say we, I'm talking of millennials, young adults. I'll be defining what I mean by that in just a minute. But we are born into this generation where at the click of the finger, I mean, of, or the tap of the screen of your phone, you can see what is going on in the UK, you know what's going on in the US, you know what's going on in Afghanistan. We are connected globally and we can easily share information and rub minds together, see how Christians are doing Christianity, see how American pastors are preaching, see how you can listen to whatever you want to listen to on the podcast or on YouTube, because now we are so connected. And while that is not necessarily a bad thing, in fact, that's a good thing, but it's happening at the back of a baggage that we're coming with, especially the baggage of white supremacy, the baggage of the fact that whatever is Western is better, is superior. And that's not always true. And that's never really even supposed to be true because we are all um, important equally and significant. Andrew Walls died last week and some of you will see the post I put up on Facebook um, for him. The man single-handedly created the field of what we know today as world Christianity. Um, he had taught all around Africa, his heart was in Africa, he has written so much about it, given so much lectures about it, to the point where personally, I mean, I so much respect and celebrate him for his life and the legacy that he led. He died at 93. Um, but one of the things he said was that the impact and, and significant space that is being occupied by African Christianity today has the potential to become even more significant than the reformation that happened in the days of Martin Luther. That's to tell you how, and many of us are living in that reality without us even knowing what's going on. We are living as African Christians, whether that is in Nigeria or elsewhere in Africa or elsewhere in the world, in the diaspora. And we are not even exactly aware that we are part of something that is so special, part of something that a hundred years ago, people would not have dreamt that that was possible. It's part of something that we have the opportunity to, and a responsibility to shoulder the leadership of global Christianity. I mean, what does it mean if the most Christians in the world is presently in Africa? And that's not even factoring in the fact that there are many other Africans elsewhere that are also Christians. In the UK, for instance, where uh, I'm based, presently today in the city of London, if you go to church on any Sunday, any given Sunday, 60% of those that go to church in London would be Blacks. 
And when you now look at the population of Blacks in London, they are just only 14% of the London population. So when 14%, one four of a city is accounting for 60% of church attendance, you can imagine what's going on. So even when they say London churches are growing, what they're actually saying is African churches in London are growing. And that's not only true of London, that's true of many other cities in the Western world. And so I want to give us, as it were, a sort of wake up call in the first instance, right from this background, to help us awake to the fact that actually we are part of something great. We are part of something, a movement of some sort that God is particular about, interested about, and willing to do stuff about. There's a scholar, I think he's South African, because most of all these journals that I saw when I was preparing for these were written with the South African um, uh, geography or geographical location in mind. He said the millennial generation in Africa is one of the largest millennial populations in the world, and yet it is the least researched. That's why this kind of a research, for instance, is quite significant. My main question is to ask, how do young Christians of Nigerian heritage, I was using Nigeria as a case study and a representative case study for Africa. How do young Christians of Nigerian heritage, how do we self-identify in light of our Christian faith? And what do I mean by that? Um, in light of our Christian faith and our cultural heritage, and then what are the implications of that? To make that make sense, I had to break that down into about five other questions, which are this. To what extent do we stay in touch with our cultural heritage? To what extent can I, as a Yoruba man, own the fact that I'm a Yoruba man and feel confident and comfortable in that? What factors are influencing our Christian faith as a young person of African descent? What, to what extent is my Christian faith, your Christian faith, influenced by Western thoughts? In other words, um, to what extent do we engage with resources, whether that's someone or books or messages or podcasts that are coming from the other side of the world, that are coming from the West, coming from Europe, coming from America, as opposed to what we are generating and producing in Africa? Um, and then how do we identify ourselves with reference to our Christian faith? Like if I want to say I am a so-and-so Christian, how will I fill in that gap? Those are the kind of questions that came up in the survey which was sent out. In what ways do our Christian experience converge or diverge from what many African theologians, especially the reputable ones over the years, have been saying about African Christianity? To what extent is their submissions? To what extent is that true with what we as young adults today are experiencing? So those are the kind of things I had in mind. I wanted to understand the peculiarities that we have as young Nigerian Christians, as a representation of African, young African Christians in that sense, and to see what the implications of that are. I won't um, dwell on the limitations, I'll skip on that because of time. <coughs> and I'll quickly define two terms um, that are key to this research, identity and millennials. For the research, basically my understanding of identity is how a person or a group of people understand themselves. And that can be in terms of the labels that others have given them or the labels that they've given to themselves. So that's identity to put it in a nutshell. And then millennials, that's a tricky one to define really because the definition varies from scholar to scholar and things like that. But a more generic definition would be anyone that is born between 1980 and the year 2000 is a millennial. Um, 
that would put the age as of this year as someone that is between 21 and 41 um, years of age. But really, for the purpose of the research, I settled for 18 to 35 for two reasons. One, because um, there is a, in the only major global research on the millennial population that is of recent that I know of was carried out by a research group in the US called Varna. And they used 18 to 35 as their age of focus. That's one of the reasons why I just went ahead with their own submission. Um, and the other reason is because according to the 2009-ish um, youth policy of the Federal Republic of Nigeria, they define a youth as someone within the ages of 18 to 35. They've hence reviewed that and uh, reviewed that, I think, in 2019. Why stop with that? So I went for 18 to 35 as my definition of millennials, which kind of excludes some people that really wanted to be a part of the research um, in that sense. Okay, so that's my definition. Why I used that term together with young adults or youth, I use them to mean the same thing really. It's not about the age. It's about that space of life when we are so energetic and we want to explore and things like that. For the literature review part, I might come back to it. Basically what I did, um, was to spotlight three major African theologians. Um, two of them are dead, one of them is still alive. John Mbiti is a Kenyan, uh, died in 2019, wonderful man. And um, he was more or less one of those that placed the trail for the study of theology as Africans. So when the Westerners were beginning to, when many of the countries of Africa were beginning to gain independence, and many of the Western missionaries were beginning to go back to their country and were beginning to own the Christianity that we are practicing, so to speak. At the same time in academia, some African scholars began to emerge to begin to theologize, think deeply about what it means to be an African and a Christian at the same time. He was one of the first to spearhead that um, movement, so to speak. Himself, Bolaji Dewu, um, and a host of other scholars like that. So he wrote extensively on identity, and on African Christianity, theology, philosophy, and all of that, that I thought some of his thoughts were helpful. The main thing to note about him, as I would move on to the other two, is that he, he popularized this statement, Africans are notoriously religious. That's the very first statement in this very first book that went on to be a classic. Africans are notoriously religious. And what he meant by that is that for us, whether you're talking of African traditional religion or Christianity or Islam, as an African, to be an African is to see all of life as being linked and intertwined with your religion. Um, and then the other thing that is special or that is emphatic about his work is the fact that he also made it clear that to be an African is to be communal, is to, that last statement, I am because we are, and since we are, therefore I am. In other words, you are not alone. You are, you are only a human being because there are other human beings that give your existence a meaning. And he says that's called to being an African. So that, that's just what I would believe um, about him. And move on to Kwame Bediako. Bediako was Ghanaian. He died in 2008. He didn't live for as long. I mean, his death was a shock to many people. Uh, he, did, he didn't live as long as we would have wanted to have him around. I didn't know of him until not many years ago, but fantastic man that was very passionate about um, trying to make it clear that it is possible for you to be an African and a Christian at the same time without your Africanness being diminished and your Christianity not looking like 
a borrowed Christianity from somewhere. For you to be a Christianity as an Igbo man, as a Yoruba man, as an Ishekiri woman, as an Aousa, whatever, whatever you could be, to own your heritage and at the same time your Christianity, that was very, very key to his research. And I will just move on on him and move on to the third person whose works I also engaged with. This is Agbon, I don't know how to pronounce his name, so I just call him Agbon Orobato for short. He's a Catholic priest. But the interesting thing about him is the fact that he was actually born into a family where the dad is a practicing, I was going to say Juju man, but then that's not the case really. But his father was a traditional worshiper. His mom uh, was a person of faith, started going to church very early. But even his dad being a traditional worshiper and what many would call a herbalist, would still every morning after making all the um, what's the word? Pouring all the libations and all that to these different other gods. It narrated out that every morning his dad will still then kneel down by his bed and talk to Osanubwa, who is like the God Almighty as we know him. And so he, he grew up in a house where he's so exposed to these different deities with an awareness that there is yet a God that is superintendent over all of them that is like the God of gods and the King of Kings. Uh, and so he speaks so much about the, the, the faith of his mother and the spirit of his father and how that shaped the kind of Christian he went on to become such that today he still maintains what he calls, um, he uses an adjective that I can't remember now, but something like a safe distance between himself and African traditional religion. He's not practicing African traditional religion, but he will not, um, he would not go with anyone that says everything that they are doing in African traditional religion is evil, is juju, is black power, is this or that, because that became the foundation for his own faith in a sense that makes him know that all of life is enchanted in some, in some sense. There is, we say the spiritual is more real than the physical and things like that. Anyways, that's our, um, our battle for you. We wrote some very interesting texts that if anybody wants to know further or more, you can dig them up. One of them is African theology viewed in an theology viewed in an African text, not African theology, just theology viewed in an African text. Anyways, so talking about millennials, this picture on the screen now is actually representative of what millennials are in the or all these generations that have their different names in the United States, not in Africa. Um, so they have the GI generation. And you notice that all of those generations are usually about 20 years long. The silent generation, that was when the first world war, second world war, um, I mean the second world war particularly. And then the baby boomer generation, which came shortly after the second world war. And you notice that the number of babies that were born in that generation rose up significantly. That's why they were called boomer generations anyway. There were babies everywhere. And then came gen generation X and then the millennial generation, those born between 1980 and 2000. But when you come to Africa, then you discover that that figure is significantly more. We are talking of well over 200 million Africans that are millennials. And the interesting thing about them is the fact that it's a wide range of variety of people. You have those that are still students. Uh, like I said, I started mine from 18. So people that are still teenagers, some in secondary school, some in university or tertiary institutions, to those that are now already parents. And... Um, already showing new developments into family structure. You know, in the generation of our parents, 
some things are specifically daddy's duties, mommy's duties. You will notice that our contemporary generation of younger parents, those lines are becoming blurred. There are nothing, no responsibilities that are exclusively for mommy, except to give birth, maybe to carry the baby and all of that. And there are nothing that are exclusively for daddy. It's just, um, yeah, that's part of one of the major highlights of how family structure is beginning to be redefined. And you can imagine what that would look like in generations to come. The other thing that is common to millennials is that we are digital natives. We are having this meeting on Zoom and that's not a problem for very many millennials. We can easily feel comfortable with technology, with social media and all of that. But the difference, the major difference in African millennials to millennials elsewhere in the Western world is the fact that we are still very much involved in Christianity, not just Christianity, in religion, whether that's Islam, whether that's traditional worship, whether that's, whether that's Christianity, we are very much involved. Whereas a typical millennial in the West today is totally disinterested when it comes to religion. They're just, they would rather just be on their own and not want to get into all that stuff, to put it um, lightly. Okay, I'll leave this quote and move on to, I'll leave the methodology, the major methodologies that I did is by survey, and I'll move on to the research findings because of our time. And I know this is the part that many of us are actually interested in. Um, for those that participated in the survey, you would definitely remember many of the questions that were asked. And uh, I chose to group my findings along the lines of those five questions that I've shown earlier on as the research questions and just giving them some sort of subtopics. So the first part of my findings will be on African millennial Christians and our Africanness. In other words, to what degree are we still in touch with our cultural heritage, whether that's you being a Yoruba, Igbo, Hausa, or whatever. And when I start showing the findings, I will be asking us to contribute uh, especially if the finding looks strange to what is your own reality. I would like to hear about that. I would like to hear about your thoughts on some of those um, uh, pictures and chats and stuff that will be shown um, so that there can be a conversation. This is not just supposed to be about me talking all through the whole thing. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at factors that are influencing the faith development of these young people. We're going to look at the Western factor. We're going to look at Christian identity, our Christian identity. How do we identify ourselves as Christians, as young, young adults? And lastly, um, AMCs and African Christianity. How do we practice African Christianity as young millennials? So to start with, let me just give a general overview of the people that responded. I had 218 about respondents. About three of them did not specify whether they are male or female, but we had 77 males, 138 females that um, participated. Um, what you also notice is that in terms of age of those that participated, most of them are between 25 and 30. In fact, the average age of all participants was, I think, 26 point something or 27 point something. And then the location of those that responded, most of them are in Nigeria, 160, and while 58 were in the diaspora. When I say diaspora, that included 14 countries apart from Nigeria. Um, at least that were named. Some people did not name whatever country they were um, responding from. 
And then out of all of us, most of us that responded grew up in a city or a town, not in a village or a rural area, which is interesting. Um, and lastly, I mean, that makes sense for someone to have access to the internet to respond to it. A research that is being carried out online shows that you probably will be living in a place where there is good internet connection and access and things like that. So yeah, most people grew up and are currently living in a town or city. And then there were 16 ethnicities that were represented, most of them being Yoruba and Igbo, and then very many other, I don't want to say ethnic minorities <laughs> in Nigeria. So Ishakiri, Ibiobio, um, Ijo, and all sorts, Edo, and things like that. Um, and then there were 62 named denominations. So of all the 200 and something respondents, they are from 62 named denominations. Some people will just say they are from a Pentecostal church or Baptist church, so that's not factored in. But all the specific denominations that were named, there were 62 of them. And I just added that a typical participant, if you were to just pick somebody randomly, there's every chance and every likelihood that the person would be a lady, because of course there are more ladies, in her 20s, who grew up in a religious family and currently lives in an urban town or city, and who is part of the Pentecostal church. Because most of the 62 denominations were Pentecostal churches. So that's that. Now let's dive in into the findings of the research. One of the very first questions, when you want to say, you want to determine how someone is in touch with his or her cultural heritage. I think one of the first things to look at is language. So can you actually speak your language, your mother tongue? Uh, and interestingly, of course, if you look at this cursorily, almost everybody said yes. It's 1.7% said yes, and that's interesting. But I'm more interested in those that said no. And if you look at those that said no, even though they are not so much, there is a story that is already beginning to unfold in the sense that those that are between 31 to 35, it's just a few of them that would say no to that kind of a question. But those that are between 18 to 20, in other words, the youngest group, that's where you have the most people that are saying no. And so the younger the age, basically, the higher the likelihood that they won't even be able to speak their mother tongue. And that's something to note. I mean, that's just introductory, so to speak. And then we move on to the other question that uh, kind of piggybacks on that, where I asked, okay, on a scale of zero to five, rate yourself. How well can you read something that is written in your native language? So if I give you a Yoruba Bible now, as a Yoruba lady or guy, how well can you read it on a scale of zero to five? Five being, I'm very good at it. Zero being, I'm very bad at it. I've only shown the results for zero and one in this um, chart that you're seeing on the screen. And again, if you look at it critically, you begin to see that most of those that are poor in being able to read what is written in their mother tongue, are again, those between 18 to 20 or 18 to 25, if you look at it across board, that makes up for 25% and 12.6%. So by the time you get to 31 to 35, only 2.8%. So in other words, again, those that are older, significantly still are able to read to a very good degree of proficiency in their native languages. But when you get to the 18 to 20s, the teenagers, the younger, young adults, the challenge becomes more. But there is another layer to this that I decided to add underneath, and that's whether you are abroad or in Nigeria. 
and I discovered that those that are abroad in the diaspora, the challenge is even higher for them because then you discover that most of those that are claiming that they, are, they can't read fluently in their mother tongue, most of them are coming from the diaspora. 8.8% out of a 12.6% um, percentage. Of all the population, that might not sound like a huge amount of population, but within the fraction of those that are concerned, we can see that disparity um, ever so clearly. Let me pause there and actually ask um, the audience, how many of us can relate with that finding? Or how many of us feel like that's not true? I know very many young people that are very young and very fluent, both in speaking and reading things written in their native language. Anybody? Or maybe just want to pass a general comment, either to corroborate the findings or otherwise. I'm just, I want to learn as much as I'm willing to share the findings from the research. So I'll take one or two contributions and then I'll continue. Anybody, anybody, anybody? Just unmute yourself and go for it. There's no. Yeah, Pastor. <laughs> yeah. Um, I agree with the findings, and it's very. I, I think it's very accurate with what I've seen, and I know the kind of anger it builds in me <laughs> when I see the reality. And I was, I'm always very shocked, and the excuses that parents give for not even trying to um, encourage their kids to to their teenagers their children young adults to speak or read be able to read in their native languages and i have this intense fear of my culture dying off so i've told my husband any children that were growing in this house that cannot speak will be given to orphanage <laughs> i'm just joking yeah that's how I, I take it very personally like my culture is very dear to me and like you said in your introduction it doesn't quarrel or battle my africanness yeah thank you beautiful. actually you come across to me as someone that i would have thought would not even be able to speak or read your have I ever people always say that i ah this for my language is deep i oh god <laughs> nobody understands <laughs> Um, does any other person want to share, corroborate, or otherwise? Okay, uh, let me come in here. Good, good yes, evening, sir. everyone. Good evening, sir. Yeah. Um, well, first and foremost, I think the, the research is hundred correct. Um, even though we claim we have received um, independence from the colonial masters, but I, I, I still think deliberately we are colonized. We are being colonized indirectly by the ways of life, uh, largely influenced. I think because of the Western education that we have um, come to embrace. And um, for me, like the other speaker said, it is there is an interference coming in. I don't know. Hello. Uh, um. Hello. Yeah. Can you hear me very yeah, clearly? I can hear you now. Oh, okay. So, like the other speaker said, it's actually very worrisome, particularly the upwardly mobile people in this country. Uh, you believe you have arrived if your children are speaking phonetically, so to say, yes. you know, and um, and relegating their mother tongue. It's a big, big, big problem. You know, I think um, our system of, of education 
and the curriculum that we teach encourage that. So it's a big problem. Apart from even the religious angle of it, culturally, and I think as a Yoruba person, it, it, it affects the Yoruba culture more. I know the Igbo still, there's hardly any Igbo home, whether home and abroad, that you don't find their children speaking Igbo language. I stand to be corrected. Uh, the houses too, uh, to a large extent, but Yorubas, you know, and um, it, 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 it calls for concern, really. It calls for concern, really. Um, then secondly, um, I, I think I would um, want you to also dwell more on this African theology. By the way, I'm studying theology currently, anyway. Uh, I'm doing BTH. I'm doing BTH currently, and um, uh, I want to delve into that. Uh, the, the, the truth of the matter is that as Africans, and um, when it comes to theology, we have very few African theologians. Very, very few. And um, it's, also, it's also a thing of tragedy that we don't even have many Nigerian theologians reputable, so to say. We have very few, but if you pick up any reputable African theology, uh, theology book now, you're probably reading from South Africa, a few from Ghana, and a lot from Kenya and Uganda. So I don't know whether it's this not being proud of being African. And Nigeria is actually in the vanguard of this. I don't, I don't think the East Africans try to throw away their culture, but Nigerians generally, we try to, you know, try to, to sound foreign, to look foreign and all that. And by the way, Apostolic Church accepts somebody like me, you know, being a member, grew up there, I've been, I've, I've been interpreting from age 15. So whether you yeah. like it or not, you have to read the Yoruba Bible. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I think that's what helps somebody like me to be very vast yeah. in Yoruba language. And um, those languages are disappearing in our school. You know, rather we rather teach French, teach um, English. In fact, now some, some schools have started teaching Chinese. Yeah. You know, so I think it's true. And um is something we need to do. We, we need an area we need to look up, look at. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir. That's very helpful. Um, I, I, I remember speaking with um, a couple of PhD students, um, also at the same uni where I did this, that had both been a part of a very major theological seminary in Nigeria. And they were both lamenting the fact that even to write essays while they were in, in, in theological school, in seminary, if they are not citing Westerners, they have not written anything. Because they, they, the lecturers believe that they are just citing Nigerians. You, know, you, have, you have not done any work. You need to go and cite the real people that are doing the real job. And that's very, very disheartening to find out that where we are supposed to actually be training people that will be able to master both sides of this reality. We don't even have um, people that are appreciative, so to speak, of what is coming from amidst ourselves. So that's that's very, very right, sir. Um, I would, uh, there is a point where I would need to tie back some of these things to some of those theologians, so I'll go back to, to speak about them um, in, just, in just a while. Um, still in line with, so I'm continuing with this, with the, I will open it up for conversation shortly as well. Still in line with um, exploring the issue of our Africanness, so to speak. I also went on to ask about whether people are familiar with proverbs in their culture, 
again, you see the same, the very same thing. In this case, I've shown those that's rated three, four, five. In other words, those that claim to have proficiency in, in proverbs in their culture, in their native languages. And again, you see that the 31 to 35, they are 57.5%, whereby within the 18 to 20 uh, age group, you have just 25% of that. And then, are you familiar with taboos? Every culture has taboos. Like there are just some things as a Yorubas or that Yorubas will consider a war. Things we shouldn't do. And that's present in virtually every culture. Again, in terms of those that are familiar and aware of such things, you only find 12.5% of those within the 18 to 20 age group. Whereas those between 31 to 35, you find 42.5% of that. So it goes on and on. But majorly, the main findings under that first category of questions that um, I was trying to explore is that the younger the participant, the less likely they'll be fluent in the indigenous language. And then that the challenge of that fluency and proficiency in native language is significantly higher for those in the diaspora. And thirdly, that generally older millennials, African millennial Christians that are older, especially those 30 and above, are more in touch with their cultural heritage than younger AMCs. And the trend is indicative of what one might expect to use the word that, um, uh, that Gabriel used just now worrisome actually for the subsequent generations so that's don't call, that's don't call me that you <laughs> i'm about to you just call me gabriel thank you so thank much. you um and that's that's uh that's bad about that i went on to shift a little bit to begin to double click on the issue of what i call african identity so there's a point blank question about do you even consider yourself an african christian and to what extent do you reckon your African identity has been important with your Christian faith? And again, you will see that within the 18 to 20 group, more than half of them, 57.1% of them are saying their African identity is not important or that they don't even consider themselves as African Christians. So the question then becomes, so what are you? Um, and I don't know the answer to that. I wish I would have been able to ask that. Whereas if you look within the 31 to 35 age group, you'll find out that most of them are saying it's somewhat important or it's so important that it defines my Christian faith. In other words, they are still more comfortable with embracing their African identity alongside their Christian identity in that sense. Um, then, yeah, and then one of the questions as well was in what ways is your church African? And I had some interesting responses. The range of responses yeah, around yeah. things about the mode of worship, the way they do the church. Are <laughs> uh, the churches really African? That, that's that's. I mean, of course, the answers are diverse, and so I I'll actually, I don't think I'll, so. read, I'll read some few responses in the next few slides. Maybe, maybe rural churches, rural churches, urban yeah, churches, urban churches are not African. There is the issue of what the respondents understand. By, I mean, that was what I was getting at when I asked this. I wanted to even understand when I talk about Africanness or African identity, what exactly do you understand as being African? And so for some people, the way we are vibrant and jubilant singing and dancing, to some people that is African. Um, the way males are dominating leadership in the churches, to some people that is African. Um, the way some churches inculcate some beliefs and practices that are more or less adaptations of African traditional religion 
to some people that is African. The way we pray aloud with passion and vibrations to some people that is African. Um, the way you need to interpret to a certain language to some people that is African. And then dressing, of course, amongst the ladies. I remember that most of my respondents are ladies. So dressing was a big issue. And then lastly, conformity to African culture and tradition. So some people were talking about how in their churches, the way they respect their pastors, more or less the same way they would respect um, priests of certain deities um, as representatives of the gods, so to speak. Um, to some people, that is, that is African. Now I'm just gonna read a few responses on different aspects of all of this that some people sent in. So a 27-year-old female said, we worship in Yoruba language in my church. We read the Bible, Sunday school pamphlets, and all other literatures in Yoruba language. And we dress in traditional Yoruba attires, although our pastors are mandated to dress in suits and colors, which again is something to critique. Because um, in my church, for instance, that's the dress code. As a pastor, you have to put on suits and all that and stuff, even irrespective of the season. And you're wondering that we got that from the Westerners. And now that I live in the West and I can see the way they dress, and I'm wondering, they are not even dressing like that anymore. Why are we still <laughs> dressing the way we dress? But that's a story for another day. Another 26-year-old female says, my church believes there's still a mode of dressing that is not acceptable for ladies because it is not acceptable in African culture. Um, another person says, my church believes there is still a, oh, okay, I've just read that. Someone said, dressing is considered spirituality in my church. And another 27-year-old lady says, in my church, there is no use of earrings and no wearing of trousers. And of course, we know that's a common reality in some church uh, circles. Then most of my members here, speaking a 30-year-old man that is in the diaspora, says most of my members here in the Diaspora African Pioneer Church are Nigerians. And so the way we behave and connect to each other, even in our services, is in typical Nigerian style. By the way, for those that are, that are watching that are in Nigeria, part of what I saw from the research is that some, those in Nigeria think that those other, that are abroad, um, that are Africans, are more or less like if you go to their churches, they are now like proper Oyibos and doing things in the way the Western people would do it. But in reality, actually, if you go, I mean, the major challenge to Christianity in the Western world today, in spite of the fact that churches are going where there are Blacks, the reality is that in many of those churches, all that you find are people that are of the same ethnicity with the pastor. So if the pastor is Kenyan, it will probably be a Kenyan church. If the pastor is Nigerian, it will more or less be a Nigerian church. And not just even a Nigerian church, if the pastor is Yoruba, then you find more Yorubas in that church than any other tribe, as it were, in Nigeria. That's usually the story. And so the church still doesn't look too different from what you have in your typical church here in Nigeria. Um, someone from an Islamic country, a 32-year-old lady, said, my church comprises mostly of Africans because it's easier to evangelize Africans in that part of the world without getting into trouble. Um, and it goes on and on and on like that. My church denomination was founded by an African, says another person. And as its headquarters in Africa, traditions like respecting and obeying elders, even when they are wrong, <laughs> inability to explain myself because I'm younger, and how the pastor's personal convictions automatically becomes a doctrine. These are the African things about my church. Um, I'll pause there and actually, yeah, and actually ask us, what if I were to 
if I were to ask now, I just want one or two other responses from us that are on the, on the platform, that what is African about your church? What would you say uh, is African about your congregation, where you worship in your local assembly? If any, if there's anything African at all, what would, you say? What would that be? I know you are smiling as if you want to say something. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be politically correct, but I'll say patriarchy. Patriarchy. So male dominance. Okay. Yeah. Um, Damilari Oshonro, you unmuted. Do you want to make a contribution? Yes. So, so permit me, sir. Um, I'll ask a question. Sure. And um, yeah. So, we, when we talked about um, African Christian. Yeah. So my question was going to be that um, should there really be any, anything like African Christian, European Christian, Asian Christian or whatever? Yeah. You know, <laughs> shouldn't they be just um, Christians? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it was just a question. It was just a question in my mind. That's, that's, that's where this will land. So in my implications and especially my conclusion, I went back to that in a sense. Because really, of course, I don't want to get into it. I'll mention it in the conclusion. But yes, it's part of what we're going to talk about. Uh, and that's a very, very valid and beautiful question. That's how I used to think as well. Like, what's the point? And so when I sat and started hearing different things, and I thought, okay, actually, my Africanness is a gift that can also cement wow. my contribution as a Christian. There is something unique that I have to offer as a Christian that I can only offer it in the context of my African identity. Now I'm beginning to answer, but we'll get to that and say some few more things about that in a bit. Okay, so in summary, uh, yeah, go on. Can I say something? Yes, please. Gabriel. Okay, uh, I just want to say I'm not too sure, maybe based on my own experience, I'm not yeah. too sure there is any African Christian per se, unrepresented. Mm. Uh, res responding to the question you raised, yes, yes. Ra ra rather, I would say it's a it's, it's a combination of uh, African style, Western style. In fact, we're adding American style to okay. it now. I mean, if you look at the way these imagine churches now, yeah, absolutely. You know what is trending now? Nobody put on suits to minister. You put on jacket, trainers, you know, yeah. etc. Et so, but but to further expand your question. Yeah. Really, if, if we really want to go very deep into um, the cultural implication of your Christianity. And um, I will draw my first influence from the Bible. If you pick the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, from the, the, the Eastern influence, the Roman influence, the Greek influence, etc., etc., you see that culture comes into play. You hear things like um, feet washing, for example. You know it's cultural, for example. Uh, you see David playing harp. This that's, that's a cultural instrument. So if we're going to say talk about African Christianity, let's just take a segment of our Christianity worship. With what instrument are we worshiping? Are they really African instrument? I remember when we started in TAC, it's all going to be one, two drums. There used to be, what do they call that thing? Like that thing they used to, that that Tankara uses. We have like a set of yes, it yes. and all that, you know. But now all those things have disappeared. 
if you even still find them. Rather, you see drum set, you see piano, you know, in fact, piano is even disappearing. You see computerized beats. Nowadays, fast tempo, computerized beat. So in the real sense of it, I, I still wanted to still want to put it to you as a researcher. Do we really have African Christian in Africa or in diaspora? I don't know, but I mean, it's left for you as a researcher to prove further, but that's just my only little question. Yeah. I mean, to say, I mean, there are churches that want to attempt as much as possible to say, we will be rid of all influences from elsewhere and just stay true to our culture and our Africanness as we do Christianity. Um, but the truth is such churches are not usually um, attractive to the general populace. I don't think it's a bad thing in and of itself for us to learn what going on elsewhere and, and adapt that in one way or the other. We live in a global village now. We can't help it. But then, we need to do all of those cross-pollinations in my, I mean, this would be my own argument, to do all those cross-pollinations with a rich sense of who we are first and foremost, and what we have to offer that is unique. And, and okay, maybe this might actually take me back because um, Mr. Gabriel has actually asked for us to do a little more on those um, theologians. That's one of the major issues that, um, What's his name was going uh was really researching. Um, his research was asking two questions. One, could an African could Africans become fully Christian only by embracing the mindset of Western Christians? Because that was what he was saying. By the way, he also schooled in the West. I mean, did his first master's and, and uh, at uh, in France, something along the lines of French literature and all that, before he went into he was an atheist for, for, I mean, for very many years before he had a dramatic, something like the kind of false road to Damascus experience. And then he became a Christian. And then he began to have some interesting questions. To start it here, I, would, I would get to you shortly. I can see you raising your hand. So he began to ask, can I be an African and a Christian really thoroughly at the same time? And secondly, because of his experience in literature, especially with first century, second century literature, he was able to then begin to look back to the Bible and say, what did this look like back then when Paul was beginning to go on all these missionary journeys and plant churches that went on to some of those churches still survived till the second century, third century, the Greco-Roman world. How far was it possible for people then to be both Greek and Christian at the same time? And when he began to engage with the literature from that time, his major finding was that the Hellenistic culture, the Greek culture, in the heritage of those Greek converts, it was not suppressed. It was not replaced. In fact, they all they did was turn it towards Christ, convert what was what was rich in their heritage, and turn it towards Christ to redeem it and use it for His glory. And so he began to then make the African cultural heritage from our pre-Christian past does not need to be suppressed. It does not need to be replaced. If anything, we just need to turn it, allow Christ to come into it and convert it in a way. Whatever needs to go that is totally not that is totally incompatible with Christianity, we cut it off. But whatever we can, whatever God can redeem and use for his glory, let him use it that they went on to actually start an institute um, that has grown to become a major institution in Ghana now called um 
emissions reduction something like that and started it for that purpose just to be researching into all of these issues especially in an african context and professor walls was very instrumental with that continue to lecture there even until his passing away so his major submission was that Christianity must engage with one's identity, whether as an African or Asian or European, as the case may be, and then transcend that identity to become the identity. So your Christianity becomes the real thing, but not at the risk of suppressing who you are, but redeeming and owning and taking over who you are to become what you are and who you are and what you have to give to the world in support or in contribution to the mission of God across the world, wherever you are in the world. So that's, that's kind of a short answer to that. But like I said, at the conclusion, I will go back to something that Professor Walls said, um, and we use that to wrap this up. I need to speed up a little more um, to get to it's question color. Okay, Sister Titi, sorry, you are raising your hand. Thanks, Anna. Thank you, Anna. Thank you, Pastor. I just wanted to, uh, I was hoping you could talk more about um, the, the, how will I put it now? How culture influences the Bible. And like um, um, Mr. Gabriel just said, even with the harp, you just clicked that. That's so true. And I find myself not being able to vocalize some of the questions I have for fear of the pastor or the priest turning it to their own doctrine or personalize whatever they you know they just take it like is i said the older generation don't know how to ask a lot of questions sometimes so i'm like i consult the holy spirit because i don't want anybody to confuse me further yes yeah, so it, it's very dicey and i feel like we don't we 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 downplay the the importance of that the dynamic nature of christianity like that priest that you quoted said you know, like Christianity is dynamic, constantly changing, and it's culture. And like Anu said, sometimes it just feels like you have no voice. And fine, we have to, you know, humility is all part of our Christian work and just listening to people mm. that came before us and like, have... to, like we should just listen. But fine, we still need to be, be, be original in our thinking. Okay, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I just sorry. My mind is mixed up now. The question yeah, was okay. I, I, I <laughs> yeah. That was one part of it, and then the other part of it is probably why um names. For example, we look at Paul, Joseph, amazing, and Peter. Oh, I love those names so much. But I don't ever want that to be my first name or my child's first name. I want to hold on to that babatunde with all my strength. Um. <laughs> So I don't like what do you think about such things? Like I just feel like, yeah, one more thing that I'm losing. Oh my, this is Greek. What's the meaning you said? This is Aramaic or something. Yeah. So I, I it's just very it doesn't make me any less of a Christian when everybody's saying, Oh, my baptismal name is this, my confirmation name is this. Leave the titi. There's nothing wrong with you. I'm giving eternal praise to God. Titi Lokpa is just fine, is as powerful as Paul is. That's, that's good. Yeah, thank you. Sorry. Those issues that you raised are very, very um, pregnant. And of course, we can't possibly um, exhaust all of the different issues and areas to dig into more on this short presentation. But to, to just quickly make a couple of comments. Yes, Christianity, one of the unique things about Christianity, as opposed to Islam, for instance, is the translatability of Christianity. What that means is 
Christianity in itself was never intended to be a white man's religion or a black man's religion or an African religion or an Asian religion. The gospel is the gospel. Teach it to an Asian man, it enters into an Asian world and becomes something that is unique and beautiful as an African contribution. Preach it to an African man in his Africanness as a Yoruba or Igbo man or Awusa man. And it comes to end, especially when, and one of the ways this happens usually, is when the Bible gets translated into those local, local languages. And I, I, I mean, that can take me down. I wrote an essay on, on Logos Christology, just examining John 1 1. In the beginning was the word God and what was God. And how that was translated in Yoruba Bible, oral. And taking that down into the deep roots of African traditional religion about oral. By the time you, I, I was, I mean, I didn't know where I was going to get to with that exploration, but it landed in a place where John 1 1 now makes ever so much sense to me. And oral is powerful amongst Yorubas beyond what the local And so all of these issues, you know, is, is unique to Christianity. In Islam, it's always Arabic, wherever you are, just engage with it as an, I mean, in the Arabic language. But you know, the Christianity has that uniqueness, but we are underutilizing the potential for the translatability of Christianity because we have allowed many other influences to overshadow, or we have just taken things hook, line, and sinker without asking questions. And that's what I'm hoping that our generation will begin to question and begin to ask ourselves, what does it really mean for me to be Titi Lope as a Yoruba, beautiful Yoruba lady that is also a Christian? And what would that look like in my marriage? What would that look like in raising the next generation in my children and things like that? And how can I impact my sphere of influence with the unique flavor of a unique Titi contribution to the mission of God as a Christian? And that's, that's, that's one way to look at it. I'm talking about names, how beautiful. One of the ways that we do theology as Africans, I mean, um, Mr. Gabriel was talking about the fact that we don't really, the, the issue with African theology is that it's more unacademic, but we do it, all of us. I wrote an essay on Tokyo Alabi and her songs. And I mean, I don't want to get into the issue of Oni <laughs> But basically, all of her songs and how she praises God, that's theology. That's our theologizing, conceptualizing God in words. And another ready made way we do that is in giving names to our children, Oluwadis. And those are ways of us trying to ascribe to God or give expression to our understanding of God in our life. And all those Oluwa, Oluwa, and Olor, Olor, names in the Yoruba sense. So, yeah, that's, that's beautiful. And we should hold on to it with all possible strengths. Um, Kingsley, very briefly, I still have about four minutes. Yeah, just conclude, just, just, just finish your slides. Uh, by the way, very good slides. Uh, oh, and I wanted to say that even in a, within us in Nigeria, you see people that some of these leading Pentecostal churches in Nigeria wanting people in my village to sing Yoruba song. Mm. So imagine someone in my village to be singing a Yoruba song 
instead of being localizing the the service the same way people that that the same way those in Rome are using Latin in a village yeah. that is that you can they can't even speak English there and all that stuff. It's just it's just localizing somehow, but just finish. I don't let me not speak so much. I'm just, I just wanted to put this uh, to say this thing that even within us, we try to. So, I think when we want to talk of changing, there are a lot of problems, but how do we change? The change starts with us. If you are in a local place and you are meant to leave praise and worship, you need to find the worship of praises that people around there can relate to, and not just. Gambi, go to a ticket or back place and be singing Ubo songs and all that. I see, I see what you mean. Thank you very much. This other section, I mean, I might not end up covering all the sections for the findings, but this other section I think would also be very significant to what we're talking about. So, this is the section about the factors that are actually contributing to how we became Christians and the kind of Christians we are becoming as young adults. The first thing I want us to note is when I asked about when these respondents began to take Christianity seriously, or to speak in evangelical terms, when did you become born again? We noticed that most of them became born again within the ages of 15 and 17, thereabouts, as on that chart. Or more broadly, we can even say between where it says 12.86 and 19.29 or 21.43. So majorly in our teenage years, that's when many of us began to take Christianity seriously. Where were we in that teenage year? We were in the university. And so when I asked about, okay, what are the factors that are really most significant to your faith development? And the way I constructed my questionnaire, I did it in a way that all of these questions, I did it such that when you add, when you add an answer, whoever will fill the questionnaire next sees your answers as options and can choose those options and then add the ones that he or she wants to add if there is still any other thing to add. And so it became a very uh, interactive and self-developing questionnaire uh, in and of itself. But the most significant faith influencing factor here you would see is parents. And that says a lot to us that are becoming parents now, the kind of enormous responsibility that lies on our shoulders. Most of us, our parents played the most significant role in our faith development. What's next on the list is not your pastor. It's not, it's not your disciple. Next on the list, to my su surprise, or maybe not now that I'm looking at the, the findings generally in a broader view, is fellowships in campuses, fellowship in schools, in colleges, in tertiary institutions. And that's, that's massive. And, one of the major issues that then comes to mind with that is that's an area that nobody is really researching. Stuffs are happening in those campus fellowships, and nobody is really interested in what is going on there. Nobody's writing about that. Nobody's researching about that. So, if many of us are saying that's where we found serious development, nurturing, and I mean, I for one, I could relate with that. I can't speak of my Christian faith today without going back to talk about the Bapemaolo University and my time in Tax One in the Apostolic Church Student Fellowship in that school in all the years that I spent there. And then next on the list is still not their pastor, their church pastor, but a Christian mentor. In other words, these millennials and young adults are particular about mentors. I said before that my wife and I run 
an online mentoring uh, platform. And you'll be surprised, one of the things that it's a private group on Facebook, started as a WhatsApp group, became two WhatsApp groups, Telegram and then Facebook. And one of the questions that you need to answer when you are going to join, so it's not a Facebook group that you can just join, you have to answer a couple of questions before an admin will allow you to join. And one of the questions is to ask about how they heard about the group. And you'll be surprised to find people say things like, I'm just searching for mentorship on Facebook. I'm just looking for, people are crazily in search of mentors. They are looking for people to mentor them. And that's the third on the list. Before you then come to my pastor, before they come to pastors that they follow online and Christian literatures and all of that. But those top three, I want us to take note of them. And then the next question is about the most influential books and their authors. The reason why I was, at this point, I'm already having it in mind or expecting that I'm going to see lots of Western books here and I wasn't disappointed. But I want you to note that the very first thing on the list is actually not even a book, Mount Zion movies. Again, that's huge and massive. Lots of respondents are saying Mount Zion movies under a question about books and authors. <laughs> that tells you that they, they looked through the questions, they still felt like there is something that has done something to my Christian faith that you have not catered for. Mount Zion, let's put it there. And that's, again, a, a movie industry that I'm yet to see any extensive research work being done about them. And no doubt, the most successful Christian drama ministry in Africa, arguably in the world. And that's, that's significant. But apart from that, if you remove the Monzaya movies and look at all the books that are there, they are all books written by Onyibos, except for one, Biliakon is Becoming Like Jesus, that 17 respondents mentioned. But purpose-driven life by requiring classic, I've read it. I mean, virtually all the books here, I've read it. Max Lucado's books, there was no particular title that was specified, but all his books were put together. But you find all of these books are the books that we are reading, but how many of them are written by someone that is thinking from our worldview, in a manner of speaking? None, except for that one, Becoming Like Jesus. Then 10 most influential authors. Again, if you look at this name, this list, you'll find five Western authors and five African authors. And don't mind that my name is there. My name is only there because most of the people that answered are you people that know me. <laughs> I'm not that influential, at least not yet. <laughs> most influential preachers. This again also stunned me. I was surprised to find Apostle Joshua Selman, whom, by the way, I didn't know anything about until just a couple of years ago when Facebook algorithms is always bringing its videos on my video, video feed. And I was like, who is this Selman guy? Who is this Selman guy? And then I looked at all these lists and I'm not surprised that most young people would relate more with Apostle Selman because he's a millennial himself. I mean, by some definition. He's, he was born in 1980. And we said millennials, those between 80, born between 1980 and 2000, right? So. In some, in some regards, he himself is a millennial. He speaks, apart from the depth of his teaching, he communicates in a language that young people can understand. And then you find the likes of Baba Deboye, Liakone, and the rest of them on that list. Then most influential Christian events, again, Koinone at the top of that, which is the program that um, opposed to Joshua Selman hosts. And then we have Holy Ghost service of the redeemed, camp meetings, WAPBEC, and all these other 
very indigenous, so to speak, or homegrown events. And when it comes to music ministers and gospel singers, Nathaniel Bassi, again, you find a blend of both Westerners and Africans. But I'm actually glad to see that Nathaniel Bassi and Dunsi and Oyekon are both top on the list, each of them with 150 respondents mentioning their names. And those are homegrown music ministers that are making exploits. I want to believe that part of their appeal to the younger generation is also that they do a lot of collaborations, even with Westerners. And so you see Nathaniel singing with Chandler Moore, you see Dusin Oyeko singing with um, Kim Burrell and the rest of them and things like that. And so we, they, they have been able to both hone their indigenous, so to speak, um, flavor and at the same time expose themselves to the cross-pollination of what is going on elsewhere in the world. Sinaji's um, song just won an award recently. This um, song that has now gone on to become, I mean, lots of covers. Waymaker. Waymaker. God bless you. Um, and that's, that's, that's from here and things like that. Anyways, so the summary of factors influencing their faith is that there are two main groups of influencers, those that have one-on-one -on -one relationship with young adults especially the parents, and then people like members of their student fellowships and their mentors, and then those that reach them virtually through other forms of media, books, podcasts, and the rest of them. And then while we obviously prefer Christian books written by Westerners, I can see that there is an inclination to listen to any preacher, whether he's Nigerian, whether he's Western, it doesn't matter as long as he preaches well. Um, and is young enough to speak in our language or old enough to have become a leading voice. We are not shy to listen to the Babas as long as they still have what we want to, to I mean, what can bless us, so to speak, um, across the board. I think I would shift towards the implications shortly. Let me just mention the Western factor and then I'll move on to the implications. Hey. Yeah? I want to ask a question oh, when you were talking about the books. Yeah, in, in the in, when you were mentioning books about how that we didn't choose a, an African person. Yeah, I have been to a bookstore in Nigeria where the 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 biggest display mm -hmm. is the Westerner part, and the book smells so nice. Mm -hmm. But when you go to the uh, Nigerian authors, it's usually. The spine is usually this tiny. You can't even see the title through the name. And if you do pick kids to read, they could title it something like The Mystery of the Mountain of Fire with tiny prints. Wouldn't you choose, um, like, like um, wouldn't you choose, uh, what's the man's name? This one that I like. Wouldn't you choose someone else that has good prints? It's brown. It's it The thing is, their books appeal to us. Yeah. So it, even if a Nigerian one contains what, what we need, we can't see it from the cover. The cover might be blurry or something. And yeah, I just thought to put that in, sorry. That's, that's so true. Um, I mean, yeah, really. I had said it before, I'm, I'm a writer myself. I'm a publisher myself. Published a few books in Nigeria before I went to the UK. I published books in the UK. And I can see the difference. Even the books that I published when I was in Nigeria, if I see some of them, I still, I still cringe. Like, how did anybody even buy this? How would anybody read this? In, in spite of whatever content you thought you put, poured your heart into, the publishers just made a mess of, <laughs> of what you've done. And so I, I totally get what you're talking about. And yeah, that speaks to our individual 
tests for excellence. I've been seeing some excellent productions now that I came to Nigeria very recently. And so there are people that are doing really wonderful packaging and all of that now. Uh, and I'm hoping that that would continue um, in times to come. So I want to go to the Western factor. Um, and basically, it's just, again, to reiterate what has been said before anyways. When I asked about the cumulative impact of resources from white Westerners or foreigners, I specifically mentioned it that way, vis-a-vis -vis those from Africans or Nigerians. When it comes to books, the cumulative impact of the ones from the West is higher. When it comes to movies, the cumulative impact of movies from the West is higher. We prefer Hollywood to Nollywood. <laughs> when it comes to podcasts, the Westerners have it. The only place where we have more people saying um, there is more impact from Africans and Nigerians is when it comes to the personalities that they follow online. Uh, and that makes sense because even the algorithms of all these um, social media platforms and all works with your geography, the manner of speaking um, and, and things like that. So, but all of that to, to underscore the fact that we still prefer Western things. And I'm not saying that is necessarily bad, or maybe it is because there is a baggage, there is something behind that, that we are bought into without even knowing it. And so when your friend that you've always been together travels out of the country to another country in the West, you begin to think that the person is now better than you. And that's not true. That's far from truth. Because really, at the end of the day, we are who we are in terms of our values as for our lives and, and not in terms of maybe where you're living or the privileges that you think um, somebody has over you. Um, I won't go into all of these other things on the screen. It's just other researches that corroborate that, which I've done in previous times, um, again, with this as well. Let me just read some of the things that people say. A 26-year-old female said, I believe we took religion and aligned it with our culture, which is not so in the Western world. And this has reduced our thinking faculty. So for this person, now, the belief is that for you to actually bring religion and align it to your culture will reduce your thinking faculty whatever she means. A 22-year-old female says, in my church, they play aloud and fight against spiritual enemy more than they do abroad. And I'm thinking, go abroad first and actually see. <laughs> go to a video <laughs> in London <laughs> or a video <laughs> in anywhere, really, in an African church, and you discover that we still pray aloud and fight against spiritual enemies. <laughs> Africans are Africans, wherever they are. That's where uh, I'm going with that. Um, so generally about that, there is a diminishing proficiency in indigenous, indigenous languages and all the most influential books that we saw were written by Westerners. And then the respondents have been impacted more generally from the West than they have been impacted from Nigeria, from Africa. And that's a challenge to us really, that especially those of us that are older millennials, so to speak, can we begin to create the content that those that are coming behind will engage with? We are in a better position to speak their language. Are we going to actually do speak their language in that regard? I'm going to jump on now to the implications of the findings because of time. And that would be the, excuse me, the last part. The summary of the main findings is a bad news and good news relationship. The bad news, is that African identity is gradually being eroded. We've seen that from among millennials and predictably more so among those that are coming after us. 
But the good news is that when it comes to Christianity and any other religion, really, millennials are still very involved and we are very interested, unlike millennials in the West, in Europe, in North America. Now, what are the implications of this? The primary implication of this research, in my own understanding, is we need to figure out a way to foster what I call the discovery of the healthy self-awareness for us as young people, a self-awareness that is rooted in our culture and our heritage. There's a proverb that says, if you don't know where you came from, you will not know where you're going. Uh, and my, my way of looking at the implications is majorly in two ways. One, I believe there is an implication from, the from these findings for those that are older millennials, especially those that are 30 and above. And there is a general um, implication for the church, for the African church, regarding God's mission, missiology. And for the older millennials, my challenge is in a few ways. One, we have the greatest potential of slowing down this erosion of African culture. We have that potential amongst us, especially when it comes to the next generation that are looking onto us for mentorship. And as we are becoming parents, we want to be sure, just like Titi was saying, to ensure that we are, we are intentional about actually handing down the legacy that was handed over to us. Without that intentionality, it won't happen. Especially more so for those that are living in the West. It's twice as difficult. So we need to own it. And of course, you can't give what you don't have, or you can't pass on something that even you yourself, you've not valued and appreciated. And then there is the need for a willingness and a readiness to answer a barrage of questions. I believe part of the reason why many of us are losing out on some of these things is because when our parents were giving them to us, they didn't explain why. And we had the culture then that you don't ask questions. And so you just take things hook, line, and sinker without knowing why. And after a while, when you got to be self-independent, if there's anything you don't really know why, to continue to do it makes no sense. And so we can easily just dismiss them. But the kind of children we are going to be having are the kind of children that are born into a generation where it's all about questions. And when they ask those questions, you must be willing and ready to answer them so that they would know why you are asking them to do stuff or you are making them or handing over certain things to them. And then the fact that millennials are generally looking for mentors, which other mentors would be better to reach out to them than those of us that are also millennials, except that maybe we had some more experience than those that are coming behind us. So look to those teenagers that are coming behind you in your immediate sphere of influence. Look to those 20-somethings and begin to point into them intentionally. And to be effective in doing that, it will mean that you need to resource yourself. You need to equip yourself with resources from around the world. Yes, read all the Western books you want to read, but also you need to start looking for resources that can help you understand your Christian faith through the lens of your African heritage. This is what led my wife and I to start Omolua the podcast whereby we just take Yoruba proverbs, one proverb at a time, reflect on it scripturally in the, light, in the light of the scriptures and make it as practical as possible. The idea is to get people to hopefully begin to once again think of, your, of proverbs and see that actually there is a great value in all those proverbs that our fathers and our elders used to talk and preach about. 
and two other resources that I personally have been engaging with. I just bought the Africa Study Bible while I was doing this research, this dissertation. That was when I came about the fact that I didn't know there was a study Bible that was actually written by African um, contributors, about 400 scholars, all of them from Africa, writing with African innuendo, commentaries on different aspects of the Bible. Lots of articles, lots of notes, using proverbs to theologize. I mean, I, I was blown away when I found it and I couldn't just wait to order for it. I've ordered for it before giving, taking permission from my wife, from our account. <laughs> and then there is the African Bible commentary that was also done, I think by 70 African scholars that did a commentary on the whole Bible, just like that. So these are resources that can help you as an African young adult to begin to see the Bible, not just only from the eyes of those that will tell you the Greek word is this and the Latin word is that and the Hebrew word is this. Fine, thank you, sir. But also let me understand it <laughs> as, as a Yoruba man or as, as a Nigerian, if, if that makes sense. Okay. And then for those of you that will be called into pastoral ministry, I'm speaking to myself, it would mean that just getting any kind of theological training will not be enough but a theological and pastoral training that would help you minister effectively in a way that prospers what I call an African contribution to the mission of God. What I mean by that is, <laughs> I believe that God's mission, when we say mission, 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 evangelism, God's mission is, is big and beyond any, any of us. It's beyond any ethnicity, it's beyond any country, it's beyond any continent. But then, it is not accidental that God made us in all of these various, with all of these various varieties of cultural heritages. The idea is by the time the gospel gets in contact and engages with all of those cultures around the world, and you contribute to God's mission with your rich depth and appreciation of your Yoruba heritage, and someone else is contributing to the mission of God, it is or a rich depth and appreciation of a Chinese heritage, for instance. When all of that comes together, that is when we will find ourselves beginning to look like where we are going. And where are we going? Revelation chapter is the seven that talks about this multitude before the throne from every tribe and every tongue, everyone from everywhere together worshiping this beautiful God, because he's not the God of the Africans. He's not the God of the Europeans. He's the God of the whole world. And so as a minister, you don't just want to take hook, line, and sinker what you've seen from YouTube that some Americans are doing or some British people are doing. You want to learn what you can, but then ask yourself, how does that, how do I translate that and practice that or preach that or deliver that in a way that comes across as a unique contribution and not a copycat of something else. And that's, that's the kind of training that I'm hoping we will pursue. And I, I also gave an example here that one of the ways that I will find expression is you will develop proficiency in using African proverbs, even in your sermons and in your everyday speech, because one of the rich uniqueness or unique giftings of Africans anywhere is in our proverbs. So when it comes to speech forms, whether you are giving a talk or you're preaching or you're doing anything that has to do with oratory and orality, you need to be vast in these proverbs. It would be, it would bring a nuance and a special color, so to speak, to what you have to offer. 
So this calls for paying attention to the personality of elders in our lives and to their wisdom. Um, those are the kind of implications I see for older millennials. And lastly, the missiological implications for the African church, whether that is a church in Africa or an African church elsewhere in the world. Because today, 70% of Africans are below the age of 30. In fact, the average age of a Christian in Africa today is 19.5. I read an article once in CNN, the person titled it, if Africa is so young, why are their leaders so old? And that's a question for another day. Because really Africa is a very young continent, not young in terms of age of the continent itself, but in terms of the demography of people that are Africans, most Africans are below the age of 30. So there is a need for whatever church you are involved in. God help us, those of us that will get to leadership, there is a need for mutual involvement of both young and old coming together. <laughs> it was just yesterday that I was watching a video clip of Samade Emi on Instagram that he did. He recorded it from his backyard, sort of, somewhere around his house, where they had just cut off a tree, a very big tree, because there was a thunderstorm or windstorm or something, and one of those kind of trees fell and affected their neighbor's property. And so they thought before something like that will happen to their property, they cut off the tree. But so it was showing us the stump of those big trees. And then it showed us two small trees that are there. And he said all along, he never knew there were any other trees in that place because of the big trees. But the moment they cut down those big trees, that was when for the first time in his life, he saw that there are two beautiful, youngish, vibrant, beautiful trees that they have just never noticed because the old ones have been overshadowing them all along. And what am I saying in that is not even to cut down the old leaders, but to let both of them contribute what they have to contribute. There's a need for that mutual involvement. The Yorubas have many proverbs to say about that. That's an elder cannot be in the market and permit a child's head to rest as still at the back of his mom. There's this one of the youth and cannot reach the rafters, the others and cannot enter the coin. There's also the a youth is wise and the other is wise. And it is on that basis that people go about that effect. But the wisdom in all these proverbs is that both the young and the old, and I could add male and female, have something to offer in every area of life. Enough of doing church where it's just all about a certain group of people or all about the older generation, we must be intentional about bringing along the young and the old. The Bible says in the last day, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. None is exempted, the young and the old. And then in discipling millennials, those of us that are involved in discipleship in any form, whether that looks like you taking Bible study or Sunday school class, or actually a youth group or whatever. We need to do it, figure out how to redeem the traditional rites of passage. In many African cultural settings, there is a rite of passage, both for the men and the women, that they go through and they know that once you go through these things, you have become a man. Once you go through these things, you have become a woman. We are not saying we should go back to doing all the diabolical stuff that might have been attached to that. But how beautiful will it be if there is something that has been biblically redeemed that guys of a certain age, say 15 to 17, will go through 
in a church context that would make them to become ready and equipped and prepared for what lies ahead of them in Christianity. And so the African church needs both the Bible and helpful cultural values to prepare or to ready our young people for what lies ahead of us. Having news for further research, I'll just list that Mount Zion have mentioned it, Impact of Christian Fellowship have mentioned it, Apostle Selman, I think is someone that needs to be researched, wonderful man of God. Nathaniel Bassi and Jose are making waves at the moment, and it would be nice to see some research about that. In conclusion, sorry that we took a bit of time. The obvious likelihood is that sooner than later, with Christianity in Africa being the most, um, as of the moment, is the most vibrant. And like I said, we have the most Christians in Africa at the moment. The implication of that is sooner or later, the leadership of global Christianity will rest on Africa. And there is every tendency that that will happen when we are becoming old. It's possible that my network might go off, so I want to get my hotspots ready just in case. I've logged in, so I can still help you. Oh, all right, thank you. Um, actually, didn't. It's because we changed power source. So I was thinking the router will go off. Anyways, so the obvious likelihood is that sooner or later, the leaders of the global Christianity will be today's millennials. However, one cannot but wonder when that time comes, are we going to be faithful to deliver a uniquely African contribution and not a copycat of something that is happening elsewhere as we offer leadership in that sense to God's mission across the globe. And back to Damilari's question, Andrew Walls said something about the real, the full, where we are all going, the fullness of Christ. And I've given an insight of that as to that revelations picture where every tribe and tongue are gathered before the throne. He says, that we can only realize that fullness of Christ by bringing together the totality of cross-cultural translations of the gospel. In other words, what did it look like when the gospel entered into the land of the Edos? What did it look like when the gospel entered into the land of the barbarians? What did it look like when the gospel entered into the land of the Greeks? Bringing all of those cross-cultural translations of the gospel together and the totality of all generations of Christians. When you bring that together, we have the fullness of Christ. In other words, no, no expression of Christianity has it all. There is something about God that I can't fully understand until I borrow the lenses of an Asian Christian to see it. There's something about God that a white man cannot appreciate until he borrows the lens of an African to see it. And so, there's a woman, for instance, in Ghana. She's dead many years ago. Her name is Afwakuma. When I wrote the article on Tokwe Aladi, I had to necessarily look at her work as well. So I presented both of them as two theologians you may never know. And she, all she did in her late years, the last 17 years of her life, from when she was 70 to when she died at 87, was she just received a gift to pray in very deep, rich Ghanaian Akan specifically, she's from the Akan tribe, Akan words that people were always so mesmerized. Kings will invite her to come and play at ceremonies of the, of the community. And so some missionaries gathered some of our prayers together and made it into a book. It's called Jesus of the Deep Forest. And it, it was first of all written in Ghanaian language and then translated into English. That is a unique, and the interesting thing is that book actually is more appreciated in many Western theological institutions than I think it is even celebrated in Ghana. 
because then it offers many people to see God in a way they have never conceptualized before. They are beginning to see God as all these imageries that she's using, as a chief, as someone that is, that is tying, tying the enemy with what you should not use to tie. He will catch the fish on the tree and, and catch the bed in the ocean. You know, all those kind of word forms that will make you pause and think, what's she talking about? Oh, so God can do the impossible. That's what you're saying. When you're saying God can catch a tree, I mean, catch a fish on the tree and catch the bed in the ocean. But that was her using the word forms that was available to her. She's contributing to the mission of God using her heritage. And indeed, when we do that, so that's, it's not like we need to be, quote unquote, African Christians, Asian Christians, European Christians, American Christians. No. At the end of the day, the point is, you are who you are in terms of your cultural identity. And when you meet the Lord, he should be able to own you to the point that what comes out of you as an expression of Christianity is unique to you. And we make that uniqueness that is not contaminated by what we have borrowed from elsewhere or picked as a baggage from elsewhere, but what we have intentionally engaged with, the more we, we engage with it, the more we look like him. So you become a, a version of Jesus that is Yoruba. You become a version of Jesus that is Ishekiri. You become a version of Jesus that is something else. And when all those different versions of Jesus come together, we have the fullness of Christ. And that's where I would land it. So Christians will give up their cultural identity in exchange for that of another. They are selling themselves short or partaking of the true flavors of the fruit or partaking of the true flavors of the fruit of Christianity among them. And those who make them do so, they are standing, in my opinion, in the way of the light of the world. And I end with a prayer. And these are taken from different things that all these theologians have said. May there be formed in Africa a continuous chain of generations of scholars and practitioners of Christianity, those who are confident equally of their Christian identity and their African identity. That was a prayer that Bediako prayed. May Africa and the rest of the global South become the new evangelizers of the churches in the West or in the global North. That was a prayer that Orobato prayed in his book. And lastly, may there be a fire of intentionality that will come upon the church in Africa, whether that's in Africa or elsewhere, and but an intentionality, a deliberateness in our efforts to acknowledge the gifts that God has given us in our, in our youths and in our cultural heritage, and to also ensure that we see to it that we deliver those gifts to the world. There is something we have to offer and that God will help us to actually do offer it for the sake of God's mission in Jesus' name. Amen. Our time is definitely, definitely <laughs> up, but I would give you <laughs> for any last comments, um, contributions, um, however short that can be. I'm so sorry that I didn't want us to have to split this to come and finish it in the next meeting. So that's why I just thought let's run through it once and for all. Any comments, any contributions? By the way, sorry, I should give a public celebration to Damilari Oshunro. All those tables that you are seeing that I, in my research analysis, it was the one that taught me how to use Excel in a way that is able to generate all this interesting data. So celebrate with that. <laughs> so any comments, any contributions? You, You're welcome. As we wrap up before we yeah. say the prayer. Yeah. Hello. Hi. Hello. Um, listening to you, it just um reminded me of my grandmother's church back in the east. 
Mm, wow. um, we do call her in Begolo. If the church was like in this secluded village, we had to walk like almost an hour to get to the church. Mm. And it wasn't in English, it was in Igbo, not just Igbo, the dialect. That the Bible was in Igbo too. I'm not sure what doctrine, it wasn't Catholic. Hmm. I'm not sure what, but then the hymn was in um, Igbo, written in Igbo. The the Bible was written in Igbo. We're not, and then most of the people that attended the church were the elderly, so they were not like we all that educated. So I'm not quite sure how they went about getting the Bible, Igbo Bible, with the Igbo hymn, hmm. and they're not really that educated that way but they did read the evil bible with the hymn every the songs were all in evil not just the general evil the dialect itself so i don't quite know how they came about all that but Mm -hmm. but just really very different i understood nothing when i attended the church and that was like in my childhood i didn't understand the dialect nothing but i did attend with my grandmother anyway i enjoyed the services but then listening to you just took me back to that time and I'm now thinking about it, I'm just wondering um, who translated the Bible to Igbo, the hymns, the songs they sang were not um, English songs that have been translated to Igbo songs. They were unique indigenous Igbo songs, but they were still gospel. And I think that would be interesting to go back and do a research on that. Absolutely. So just brought back memories generally, really. Absolutely. Thanks for that. Yeah. I think that's also a challenge for us to perpetuate as much as possible in our own different ways. See which part of these things concerns the giftings that God has given us and also to begin to use them. So if you're a composer, why don't you saturate yourself with things that are rich in your, in your culture, in your native dialect, for instance, and see how you can compose some songs in that regard, if you are given to poetry, if you are given to writing, whatever that might look like. I mean, ever since I started this program, it was after then that I wrote Pandemic Joy, for instance. And those of you that read Pandemic Joy, you notice that I started every chapter with a proverb. <laughs> because that's part of the ways that I thought I could begin to own this. Most times when I'm doing any write-ups now, I'm intentionally searching for a proverb that can even help me to make more sense of what I'm trying to talk about and the expression to, to it. God bless. Any last, I, I can take one final, final, final feedback. Or, or, yes. just, just a quick one, sir. Um, so, yes. because it was my question that, um, <laughs> I mean, the one I asked earlier. Oh, yeah. okay. So yes, I, I, I get that, um, that um, drift now, and I think I understand um, where that uh, conclusion is is driving to. Just one one last uh, devil's advocate um, um, question, maybe is to some people who then say, well, so where what do you? I mean, where is the place of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. in terms of um, helping you to um, sort of present? especially when we talk about you know presenting god in those deep um, sense mm. right you know so some people will tell you ah so where's the place of the holy spirit helping you to present god in whatever deep sense um 
that that is possible mm. you know without necessarily having to go the cultural route you know and all of that so that that for me probably would just be the other question in my mind yeah. <laughs> the reality is we don't live in a cultural vacuum so what the spirit of god is dealing with in us when we say i have the spirit of god or the spirit of god has me he has me with all of who i have in terms of my identity so the issue is not about where's the room for the spirit the issue is who am i so if i am confused about my identity the holy spirit will continue to use me through the vessel of my confusion if that makes sense because i mean the bible says the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet so at the end of the day whatever the spirit of god will do through me will be to the degree to which i have availed myself so if i am someone that has my roots in terms of my cultural the holy spirit has material to work with if I'm someone that all I have in terms of my Christian knowledge and development are the things I've learned from Kenneth Hagin and Stephen Fortick, the Holy Spirit will work with that, absolutely. So it's all about who are you? And that's actually the challenge that I'm giving us to say, we want to start asking ourselves, how better can I hone my identity as a Yoruba man? I'm speaking for myself now. And how, when I own that, the Holy Spirit has material to work with that would then mean that whatever God is using me to do, I, I've just given an example of now that my writing is begin, beginning to change in a sense. There is now, I'm no longer writing just for the sake of writing because I want to write like Max Lucado. I want to, I mean, Max Lucado has influenced me and I'm everly so grateful for that. But now I know that there is a unique contribution that I have to make. That's the reason for Omolabi podcast and all these other things. I want to start thinking and engaging with the scripture in a way that is making me to ask myself, how does this relate to, assuming I'm talking about this in my parents' church at Okeopa in Elisha, how, how does this relate to communicating it to those women? But at the same time, I'm not at Okeopa in Elisha. I'm in Liverpool in the UK when I'm ministering. So how does this relate to my current congregation where I've got Namibians and Congolese and a Cameroonian and one white man and many other Nigerians? So you see, it's about them being able to do a lot of those contextualizations. And yeah, but that's, that's the drift. The Holy Spirit is working with whatever we give him to work with. That's as much as we could take. It's past nine. We have to definitely wrap it up. If there's any questions.